This episode is brought to you by North Texas Honda Dealers. North Texas Honda Dealers, they're here to help. He has time, launches it to the end zone. Touchdown, Terrence Williams. Goes to the right side for Crabtree. It's caught. He put it on. He's up the right sideline. He's got to go. He's tackled. Sam Houston wins it. The Bearcats capture their first FCS championship. Hello and welcome to the Republic of Football. I'm your host, the college editor here at Texas Football, Ishmael Johnson, here in his lovely abode, fresh off seeing the Moody Center in person again. Mike Craven. Mike, how you doing? Doing pretty good. Those horns are, are good when I'm in, in attendance. I, I've seen Gonzaga and Iowa State game, both really yeah. impressive performances by te- Texas. I hope Rodney Terry keeps that job. He uh, he's got it rocking there. He yeah, that's been that's been an interesting point of discussion. Um, you know, me and Bruni over on Zone Star State have been trying to figure out what Chris Del Conte is looking for, right? When it comes to like splashy hire versus the guy that's kind of just getting it done. So uh, yeah, that's gonna be something to watch. And of course, on the other line, uh, Mallory Hartley. Mikeless, but still here with us, uh, or at least a uh, professional Mikeless, uh, but here with us still. How are you doing, Mallory? I'm doing well. I'm just kicking it with the old school's computer audio. So if yeah, I yeah. <laughs> the built-in mic. Even, I'm quite. I have a question for you. Um, yes. Is, is the Moody Center probably the best basketball arena, college basketball arena that you've been to? I've always wanted to go, but I obviously am never really in Austin, so I've never had the opportunity to get over there. I think what's nice about the Moody Center is you compare it to the Irwin Center, mm. you know, and so like the Irwin Center in Austin, it just it was outdated. It had been open since I think the 50s or 60s. Right. The acoustics were bad. It always felt empty, even if there was 12,000 people in there, just because of how big and cavernous it is. What's nice about the Moody Center, and I, I think it's true for like the Fertitta uh, Center in Houston, TCU has a really cool basketball stadium, Texas Tech as well where it's like with 10,000 people, it's full and it's packed and it's sold out and it's loud right. and everybody's on top of you. So I think they did a good job of getting the fans closer to the action. And and I think most basketball stadiums that have been built in the last you know, 10, 15 years have that same type of model. And it's, it really helps the atmosphere of the game for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Every, every home game I've seen for Texas just feels different, right? It feels like they're playing some, because I'm so used to the Irwin center like you, it feels like it's some being played somewhere else where it's like, is this, is this, tech is this duke you know like it just feels that type of atmosphere so uh yeah i'll have to make my way there eventually um all right i don't know how to transition but we have one we had one piece of uh kind of interesting news drop earlier this week uh ross dellinger we're gonna get right into this part ross dellinger sports illustrated had a report that college football executives are looking into looking over four potential real changes he didn't confirm that they're going to be looking into all of these or implementing a couple um, but long story short, college football executives think the game is too long and they are trying to shorten game times. Uh, they're looking into two quote unquote minor rules and two quote unquote major rules to help change. The rules that they're looking at are banning consecutive timeouts, which in this case would more affect icing kickers. Um, usually that's when that's implemented. Uh, no more untimed downs to end the first and third quarter uh, from defensive penalties. Of course, that's not really th- those. The reason why those are minor is because those don't come up that often. So it feels like uh, maybe a thing just to get rid of uh, uh, without causing much uh, harm. The two major rule changes, which are the ones that kind of caused most uh, interesting discussion on Twitter, continuing to run the clock after first downs, except for inside two minutes of either half. Uh, that'll be obviously changed hu- a huge dynamic of, of college football. And then, of course, the last one is running the clock following an incomplete pass once the ball is spotted by the referee for the next down. So the one interesting uh, – Craven, first, I'll, I'll get your thoughts on this. Of course, I, I put up a, a, a little small little piece um, on Ross's report at textfootball.com. You can go read his full report, of course, on Sports Illustrated. Uh, he goes into detail about some getting some opinions on it, things like that. By the way, quick hit, quick uh, hint for Corey Hogue. Um, uh, he has a piece coming up tomorrow recording on Wednesday. He has a piece coming up on division three head coaches sounding off on these potential rule changes because they don't have an issue of, of uh, game speed being or games being too long. They don't have media timeouts. They don't have things like that, but this is a rule that would theoretically still impact them as well. So he'll have a piece kind of where he talks to some coaches about what they think about these rule changes. Uh, Mike, what were your thoughts when you first saw this? 
I, I think this conversation comes down to two points. The first is it, are our college football games too long, right? Like it starts there. Like I, I think for me as, as somebody who covers the game, I'm fine with the length of games. I'm there for seven hours regardless. So I, I, if I'm tuning into a football game, I'm not watching the clock and going, well, if this doesn't finish in 15 minutes, I'm done. Or, or you know, <laughs> if it's a good game, it's a good game. So I, I don't know how much of that the viewing public is actually craving. However, I do understand the idea of maybe there's too many plays in a game, right? Mm -hmm. And we can eliminate both of those problems at the same time. Let's shorten the window so we're not taking up four or five hours so we can get more games on TV. And then also let's shorten those games because players are playing 90 snaps a game on defense. And that's really probably not the healthiest thing in the world. I mean, we could argue that 70 plays a game probably isn't the healthiest thing in the world, but I went back and looked at just Texas tech stats. For example, they were running six, 76.5 plays in the year 2000. And that was Mm -hmm. with 614 passing plays a game. So it's not, it's not like they weren't passing the ball back then. Right. And so this year they ran 91 plays per game. So it was 51 or 15 more plays a game uh, this year than back in 2000. And that's with throwing the ball fewer times. And so, you know, I think we've just gotten to a point where not only are there more passing offenses, but there's more up-tempo offenses. And mm-hmm. the amount of space in between plays is also shortening. And these TV execs, the NCAA board, uh, are trying to eliminate a lot of problems at once. How can we get players to play fewer, you know, snaps? How can we increase the time in between those snaps? Um, and how can we fit this game into a shorter window so we can get as many products in front of the viewers as we can throughout the weekend? And so uh, for me, the amount of plays per game is probably the issue that needs to be addressed more than the amount of time per game. Uh, But maybe those issues are so together that by helping one, you help the other. Yeah, I think one of the other issues that spawn this, or I guess, I don't know, one topic I saw brought up was the media timeout right? That's kind of a thing that's kind of lengthening. It's not, that's something that I don't know how much that can help because those are the people giving money to the NCAA. So it's not like they can like, well, actually we're not going to run commercials anymore, but like, you know, the, I guess it's more, I don't know if it's more prominent in the NFL, but you get the kick, you get the extra point time or extra point commercial kickoff commercial, right? That thing happens. Right. And that's like 15 minutes right there. Um, And, but that extends games. Right. And I wonder if there's a way to, I mean, me and you are both wrestling fans. AEW does the picture in picture, right? Where it's like, if you don't want to add, if you want to chop off, in my opinion, legitimately probably 20 minutes of a game, how about we don't cut to commercial after a kickoff, right? And we just kind of keep that. We can add the commercial, right? Yeah, sure. It'll be the big thing playing. And then it maybe minimizes and goes to, you know, goes to uh, some type of uh, picture in picture where the game's still going on. Because, yeah, I, I think when you're covering the game, at least for me, when Texas State got to started being on TV more and started being broadcasted more, you don't realize, like when you're there and you're not on TV, you don't realize how much the game stops if you're not used to being there, right? You see the guy with the orange uh, sleeve on and you're out there and you're like, what's that? Oh, right. They're, they're not, they're just at commercial right now. And it's like, it does kind of take, unless you're used to that, right? Unless you go to Texas games, if you go to uh, games that are on ESPN, now obviously all of them are usually on some type of platform. You're, you're used to that now, but if you're D2, FCS, things like that, you're not used to seeing that guy just kind of halting play, and you're like, well, what's going on? Uh, the other thing that I thought was very interesting is what happens to the spiked ball if the last one is implemented, right? Running clock, following an incomplete pass, once the ball is spotted. What I happens to spiking the ball? That, I right, that more, I, I, well, yeah, I would yeah. I would think that they would have to implement a up to the two minute rule as the right. same as, right. as the the continuing the running clock after a first down thing where there's sure. an amendment to like in the final two minutes, it does stop because you're right, sure, that sure. would that would change strategy completely. And mm-hmm. you can't change strategy based on rule changes, right? I'm all for yeah. changing some rules as long as it doesn't mess with what football is at its core, right? And like mm-hmm. the two minute drill is a big part of what football is at its core. Um, I'm with you. There's a way to you know, picture in picture, some of these commercials and then the one, and maybe I'm on an Island here. The one I think is the most obvious is just shortening halftime. Like who yeah. are we, who are we doing this for anymore? Right. Like right. nobody cares about halftime. Like we're all just getting drinks and going to the bathroom and stuff like that. It doesn't need to be 25, 30 minutes, whatever college halftime is, make it like the NFL halftime. And there's 10 minutes right there. 
Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, no. I think that brings up another good point too. I think the rules one through three that they're trying to change mirrors the NFL a lot, but that last rule that has brought up a lot of controversy, you know, you know, keeping the clock running, even after an incomplete pass, that doesn't really follow what the NFL looks like right now. So, I mean, why? Yeah, I don't like that one. I don't like the why running keep clock that. Yeah. That me. one just doesn't really make it. It's kind of that outlier to me a little bit. And it, and I, I should, I should uh, hint at uh, Ross Dellinger did say that was more of the drastic, like that's the last that is it's lumped in right. with the others, but he said that is like the last one that they're looking at implementing. Um, he also goes on to say, and again, you'll, you'll hear more from Corey Hilg's piece uh, Thursday, Thursday morning when it goes up, you know, that it's unclear how much this affects D2, D3, because mm-hmm. they acknowledge that this is an FBS problem, right? FCS will most certainly be impacted because it all falls under the division one banner, but Right now, there is no there's no indication that it wouldn't impact D two D three. So theoretically, this will be an umbrella change um, at that level. Which I mean, obviously, we'll, we'll if if that is the case, then yeah, we'll have a lot to discuss as far as that's concerned because they don't have televised games very often. So that's going to be something that you know games are already two and a half hours there. So what you try to shrink them to two, right? It's, it kind of creates a new kind of a new health risk almost in 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 certain situations for them. So I think for the, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, basically that answers the questions right there. Like what to do about shortening the games and that's to shorten media timeouts, shorten commercial breaks. I mean, I know I there's like, yeah, you I know, mean, rules with all that and stuff like that, yeah. but it, that kind of answers its own question right there. You, you, the fact that you're not seeing that in the D2 and the D3 ranks. Yeah. I, I think again, at the D2, D3 level, for me, it, it goes back to how many snaps per game. If that's mm-hmm. changed at all over the last 30 or 40 years, then maybe there are some rule changes, you know, because right. that gets to safety as much as time. Sure. Yeah. sure. Uh, but if the, the amount of plays like in the NFL, the amount of plays have pretty much stayed the same for 60 years mm-hmm. up and down here and there, it's not that much different. So if the plays that Mary Harden Baylor are running in 2022 are about the same as they are in 1982, then this is, this is not an issue for them. And maybe we should just, skip over them in terms of like making these rule changes. But if they are playing, you know, 20, 30% more snaps than they were 20, 30 years ago, maybe that is something to look at also because the offenses are changing and what we're putting on the defense changes as well. And at that level, they don't have 85 scholarships. And so, you know, some of it's, some of it's about safety as much as it is about time, even though I think the time window becomes the big conversation in this deal. Yeah. So we will see um, this, if implemented, these rule changes, whatever, whichever one they pick, whatever, two, three, all four they pick, it it is planned to be implemented this fall if anything gets passed. So this will be something that we'll be discussing and kind of keeping our eye on going forward. All right. Another piece of news before we get into our interview, as you most likely saw from the title of this episode with North Texas head coach Eric Morris, AAC dropped their schedule finally we got a big look at all of that going on um i mean craven immediate immediate thoughts when you saw the ac schedule from anywhere it doesn't have to be north texas but just rice uh utsa anything like that yeah i kind of went team by team uh you know for for north texas i think the non-conference we already knew the non-conference schedule and again we knew who each team was going to play we just didn't know kind of when um, you know, I thought I think North Texas has a really good kind of runway into the season. I think their mm-hmm. first six, seven, eight games uh, set them up for, for success. The, the stretch run is going to be tough. They they end UTSA, SMU, UAB or three out of their last four games. And so I think if you're Eric Morris and you know you got to play those teams, you'd rather play them late than early mm-hmm. just because you're a first year head coach. And, sure. and maybe, you know, more about your team then. So I, I think that worked out as well as it could for North Texas. I I challenge you to pick what the best home game is for an SMU football fan this year. <laughs> oh man. Um, let me, let me just, let me just do yeah. this real quick. Yeah. Law tech, Charlotte, Prairie view, A&M, Tulsa, North Texas, Navy. Yeah. I mean, it's gonna, it, I guess the answer is North Texas. Just like you just go, go watch the rival. Right. Um, yeah, that doesn't care. SMU doesn't care no, about that as much as North you Texas. You and I no, that, that when we went to the TCU SMU game. That stadium right. was empty at halftime, and it was a yeah, close yeah, game. That's fair. Yeah. That's they were out, no, out of water that no, day, though. I'm saying there's nobody yeah, getting drawn <laughs> to any of those other games in comparison, yeah. right? It's there, not a, a it's, bad home schedule. It's not a great home slate, and I can see why you'd want to get to the Pac-12 when you were asked to get season tickets with with that going on. So, But on the good side of it, SMU doesn't play Tulane or UTSA. 
And I would imagine those three teams are arguably your, you know, favorites on paper going into the year. So that sets up pretty favorably for SMU. I think for UTSA, they get the bye week after non-conference, and that's big for the Roadrunners. They play another pretty tough first four games again this year. They got Tennessee, Army, Houston, uh, three out of the first four out of the gate. So getting a bye right out of that, I, I think, is important for them. They play Tulane in the last game of the year. That could be a championship game decider. It could be one of those things where they play back-to-back weeks the way that that goes if those two teams are really good. And then finally for Rice, they got that random UConn non-conference game on October 7th that kind of is weird the way that the bye weeks work. Uh, But then they face a slate here at the end of October going to November. That's insane. October 28th, home to Tulane. November 4th, home to SMU. The next week, November 11th at UTSA. Get mm. bowl eligible yeah. before Halloween, or it might not happen. That's a very tough end of the road for Rice. Yeah, one of the things that stood out to me was North Texas could very well be on the verge of bowl eligibility come mid-October and miss a bowl. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. January. Because like, uh, th- that for early slate is very favorable, right? FIU, La Tech, ACU, Navy, Temple. You could they could probably go in with one loss heading into Tulane, right? Yeah, and then Tulane, tough. Memphis, UTSA, SMU, Tulsa, and UAB. That is that's tough. That is insane to close <laughs> the season. Um, now granted, I st- I would still probably bet them to flip maybe one of those 50-50 games and they get to six, but you know, that's still a tough, tough stretch. Like you mentioned, luckily they'll be towards the middle, the end of the year. So like, we'll likely see what that offense looks like with Chandler Rogers. And they'll probably be kind of fully, uh, they'll they'll understand Eric Morris's system by then and be at least at their best possible form. But still, that's going to be insane to to expect. SMU, what would you set that over under with being, oh, actually, let let me ask this. What would be a disappointment? Because this schedule sets up very, very favorably for Red Lashley's crew. What would be a disappointment to you? I think eight games or fewer. Yeah. Like they should be nine and three or better. I mean, they should be playing in the AAC championship game. Like they don't get Tulane. They don't get a UTSA. Yeah. Uh, they have a pretty easy home schedule to where they should go undefeated at home. Um, if they're decent on the road, they should be, you know, one or two loss in conference and right there for a conference championship game because, you know, UTSA and Tulane have to play each other. Mm-hmm. Yep. And UTSA gets Tulane at the end of the year. So that's going to be pretty, that's going to be favorable for them. Definitely. Um, I guess the only, the only team that's kind of up in the air, as far as I'm concerned, is like, this isn't in the state, but East Carolina. Cause like I, they're, they're a team that improved a lot last year. So I don't know how to like gauge UTSA versus them. Right. Uh, SMU versus them or uh, does North Texas or North Texas doesn't get them. So that's, that's beneficial for them. But um, still that's a game where I look at UTSA schedules. Like I, they should be favored, but like, I don't know. That was a tricky team that improved quite a bit uh, last season as well. So, uh, yeah, that was some pretty some pretty interesting stuff that came out uh, with the AAC uh, conference dropping. I was talking to Matthew Bruni about it, and he was pretty nervous about UNT hitting the six-win mark. But, you know, we kind of expected a little bit, probably a little bit of a struggle in Eric Morris's first year. All right. Yeah, okay. I mean, we're, just, uh, we're just waiting on the Sun Belt. Yeah, that's it. I mean, God, that's always been traditionally the last conference to <laughs> announce. They said by March first. They said by March first. So you know, it's we'll got to be next week. I would imagine. Yeah, we'll see. We'll hope. Anyway, uh, speaking of North Texas, let's get to our interview. Mike Craven sat down with new North Texas head coach Eric Morris. Of course, talking to him about why North Texas, things like that. Uh, not as much football-y football questions, but of course, getting our chance to really kind of just dive in depth into it. So let's get to that. Here is our interview with Eric Morris. Here with North Texas head coach, Eric Morris. I, I see you in your new office there in Denton, Texas. When you're setting up an office, what's what's kind of your go-to? What are the first couple of things you need to do to get your office to where you're ready to work in it? As you can tell, there's nothing here right now. I have a I have a, a cup that somebody gifted me so kindly. Um, I have a football that no telling how old that football is right there. So unfortunately, all my stuff's in transit right now from Pullman, Washington. And so uh, hopefully the next time we get on here and, and do a little podcast that uh, that this thing will, will be filled with with cool memorabilia, with cool stuff from the community, uh, maybe some past. Uh, players' jerseys on the wall, some of our guys' pictures on the wall. So uh, we're, we're still in, in uh, the process of getting everything worked out. Next time, hopefully, it looks good. There, there's a bunch of people outside hanging new TVs in the offices right now. So um, under construction right now, 
uh, get back. I'll get back to you on a later date uh, of of who has the prettiest office. My, I, I'll probably be last on the totem pole right now. Is that just because of this, how busy it is when you hit the ground running these days? Like there's not a, a month or two to kind of get adjusted and figure out the lay of the land with the transfer portal, the early signing period, the February signing period. Can you just talk to how busy it is for coaches and, and players right now in the calendar? I'll be honest with you. I've had time to do it. Um, you know, we, we've had some long weekends here recently. And so, uh, you know, really the, the reason mine is like this right now is, is just simply because of logistics, you know, we're um, me getting my stuff all the way here. So I just, just sold my home in Pullman should be closing on that here at the end of this week and then purchased a home here. So um, it's not like, Hey, let's, let's take a couple hour road trip. Let's get all your stuff here. It's like, Hey, let's, let's ship it across the country. And so, um, although I, I just, I got back from Pullman this weekend um, the only thing that made it back was my golf clubs. Um, I, <laughs> I haven't, I haven't enjoyed not being able to play golf at this time of year. It's 84 and beautiful outside. So, um, so I thought golf golf clubs were more important than, than office decor right now. And so, uh, so yeah, I, I think it, it just depends on where you're at, what the situation is. Um, I'd like to blame it on me being busy. I've had plenty of time to set my office up to, for me being honest with it. Just um, I don't have any things here to, to put in here. They're all in, in, in Pullman. What's the handicap? Oh, not good. Um, <laughs> love, love, love to play. I'm like, I'm like those guys on on all the uh, uh, on the Twitter and 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 TikTok and Instagram where they're like always practicing their swing and then they go out there and, and they look terrible. So, unfortunately, I'm I'm pretty good at most sports. Um, you know, tomorrow we're gonna have a basketball competition uh, within the whole team. We got a three point shootout tomorrow. I take myself in that all, all day, any day. Uh, football still like my odds um, and just di didn't grow up playing golf didn't pick it up until college um, you know I can shoot mid-80s by the end of the summer um, by no stretch of the imagination I'm gonna sit here and, and say I'm a great golfer I, I, I like to I like to try to hit it way too hard now speaking of basketball uh, you played high school at shallow water y'all won a state title there your, your dad was your head coach what was it like uh, winning a state title with your dad where does that rank in terms of sports memories for you yeah, at the top for me, just for, for personal, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, it was, it was his first state championship, his only state championship, Shallower's only state championship. Um, and to, to win it in dramatic fashion, you know, to be able to hit a shot at the end to actually win it and, and capitalize that for for uh, for my father, you know, put so many hours into it. You know, I can remember as a young child from kindergarten on, you know, mom would just uh, send you over to, to the gym to hang out with dad for the rest of the afternoon and, until we got home. And so, uh, so yeah, it's something that, um, that I'll forever remember as, as one of those special memories. Not only I think because I was able to do it and, and, and have, you know, something where I could hit the shot at the end, but also, you know, so that my family could enjoy it. And it's something that, that we enjoyed together. So I think we'll always have that special bond, my dad and I, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's something that that's special to have those. I still have my state championship ring in, in with all my bowl rings that I earned as a player, just because it's been that special to me. How early on did you know you were going to follow in his footsteps as a coach? Was that pretty, pretty obvious to you as, as a little kid? And do you have any stories of kind of helping him with plays and helping him at practice and, and that kind of stuff? Yeah, I've always been um, pretty aggressive and 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 pretty um, just uber competitive. I would say, you know, from a young age, I remember, you know, being in, in little dribblers, and my dad used to give me um, money every time I'd pass the ball when we were in shallow water. We'd dominate, you know, the other team so bad, and and so he wasn't rewarding me for scoring points; he's rewarding me for for passing the ball and and get my teammates involved. Um, you know, something where where I was just almost a gym rat, whatever sport it was, and. You know, we went in Shallowater, I, I think going from football to basketball to baseball was something that, um, you know, you just played them all and and, and you did it um, to, to compete with your teammates and, and to compete with your com classmates. And, and I think you had that sense of pride uh, for the community around Shallowater and, and winning as a community. Everybody kind of followed you. Um, so I, I think that was something cool. Now, getting into the X's and O's part of it, I had a love for sports and a love for competition. And I think that really once I got to college is, is really when I fell in love with the schematics part of it and, and being able to, you know, form relationships with different people from different backgrounds, different demographics, um, all walks of life. I, I think that was something that I really took interest to, you know, formed a lot of great 
friends. Um, they're coming from from all over the country. And so I think, you know, we had our, our first year at, at Texas Tech at Shallowater, you know, um, a guy from Illinois of all places was someone that kind of stayed with me when we went on winter break and things, you know, we just drive 15 miles down the street and he'd stay at the house with me. My mom and dad would cook for a bunch of the receivers on the team. And so you got that kind of sense of, of, uh, of pride with, with your other teammates. And, and so I think the relationship part of it started then. And then, um, and then just having great coaches in college. I mean, look, my three position coaches were, you know, Sonny Dykes, uh, Lincoln Riley and Dana Holgerson. And so I think those are guys that are just mentors of mine. Um, that really poured into my life. And, and you know, I knew I wasn't the most gifted um, athlete out there. They're going to try to recruit me every year. You know, here I am, this little 5'8 guy from a small town um, that didn't have any just redeeming quality where I was like, holy smokes, you know, this guy's just a, a natural freak athlete out there. It's it's like, you know, I had to work for everything. And um, and so I think I had to give myself a leg up. And so I, I took pride in learning the offense and knowing when to be, where to be, uh, formed a great relationship with Graham Harrell. You know, anytime you're a receiver, you want the ball, form a good relationship with the quarterback. So hopefully he throws you the rock. You know, I'm in the huddle every play. Like, hey, Graham, just do this. Like, throw it here when they do this. And so, um, so yeah, I think all that. And then, you know, Mike Leach was such a huge influence in me um, throughout my college career. I think college is really when I was like, hey, you know, this is what I want to do. I want to be a football coach at this level. And, um, but, but I think, you know, the competitive part of it, my dad being a coach was, was something that kind of got it. The, the idea started early, but it didn't really hit me till college where I said, Hey, this is what I want to make a career out of. Now, speaking of Mike Leach and those coaches you played for kind of what's your first Mike Leach memory, whether it be a phone call, a visit, kind of what was your first interaction with him? Like, yeah, they always told me no for a long time. You know, I mean, I went to all the camps. I did all these things, almost like I was begging them for a scholarship. And so, uh, you know, basically, you know, at one point, I, I think I told them that, um, you know, they were recruiting a couple other guys uh, for that last scholarship. And I told them to leave that scholarship in a room, lock the door, and, and I'd fist fight all the guys whoever came out with it gets the scholarship. <laughs> and so I think Mike really, he, he liked that approach to it. You know, he, he knew that I was a tough guy. And Mike would probably tell you that, you know, of, you know, every, all the guys that kind of in that slot category, me, Amendola, Wes Welker, you know, everybody always asks him, hey, how'd you find these guys? You know, how'd you recruit them? He's like, I didn't recruit one of those guys. They recruited me and and they wanted to come here. They showed us somehow, some way and, and had a kind of special circumstances and getting there. So, uh, no, it was good. And, and finally, you know, I, I finally started getting recruited late. Uh, Phil Bennett started recruiting me at SMU. Uh, was bringing me down on an official visit. And, and so I think that's where it kind of flipped the switch. And Texas Tech um, got me on an official visit. They offered me when, when I was in a meeting with, with Coach Leach. He does his famous little card trick, you know, that, that when he offers people. Um, and so, you know, he says, hey, if at the end of the card trick, you know, he does this whole rendition and only of, of fashion Mike Leach can. And then, like, they're all – all cards are laid out. And he's like, if this whole pile's black and this whole, whole pile's red, then you have a scholarship and I'm sitting there like, Oh, me and my mom and dad, like, Oh, I hope he didn't, I hope he didn't mess up on this car trip <laughs> and try to joke. He flips them over. They were, you know, I, I committed as fast as, as possible. So he couldn't, you know, rethink that thing. And, and, you know, as a thing that he took a chance on me and then I was able grateful and, and worked extremely hard to make him, uh, to make him proud. Now, you mentioned all those coaches that you had at the wide receiver position. They're all head coaches now while, you know, successful head coaches. Um, I, I think five of the 13 head coaches in the state of Texas either played or coached for Mike Leach during that time at Texas Tech. We cover high school football here for a living and you see the air raid all across the state at every single level. What made that offense so contagious and, and why is it, you know, kind of the thing you see when you turn on the TV, not only on Saturday, but on Friday and on Sunday as well? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a sexy brand of football. I mean, I think people like seeing the ball thrown all over the yard. Um, and then I think, you know, there's there's such a simplistic mindset to the way Leach did it. And and I think that, um, you know, some of the smart coaches and players that, that coached for him and played for him, I think it almost drove them crazy a little bit that they were doing the same thing over and over, so repetitive. 
So I think that's why, you know, a bunch of them branched off. They wanted to coach, but they wanted to put their own spin on it. It's because, you know, Mike was so hard-headed and set in his ways that they're like, hey, I, I could do this a little bit better. Let me show you how. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of beauty in the simplicity of it. Um, but at the same time, I think I think a bunch of those guys were so frustrated when they left that place because Mike was so simple. You know, us as players, you know, we were always – I remember scoring a touchdown one time against uh, – I, I think it was Oklahoma State. We had – had double slant on and they were in a certain defense and Graham said, Hey, I'm a signal double slant again next time, you know, run a slant and go, which, you know, we don't have that in the playbook. And so we did it. We scored a touchdown against Oklahoma state. And of course, you know, we jog off to the sideline, everyone's high five. And then Mike brings us over. He's like, what was that? <laughs> and, uh, and so one of those, one of those cool moments where, you know, when you scored a touchdown, he, he obviously wasn't going to take you out. Uh, he probably ripped us pretty good after that. Um, but, you know, I think we were so um, just eager to learn more, do more, and we had so much success at the same time. Um, but, you know, I think everybody's kind of adapted to it, you know, the old score air raid, and, and, you know, they found out ways to, to stop. And I think back in the day when Mike first started, you know, nobody was throwing the ball like that, so nobody really had an answer for it. And, and I think it just spread like wildfire, especially over, you know, the Big 12. And then people slowly, you know, I think you're you're in the second round of it now where everybody kind of went against it. And, and now they're going back to, you know, heavy tight ends and, and running the football a little bit more with the Baylors and Oklahoma States and, and having a new dynamic to it. But, um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, the simplistic approach to it has, has always been something um, that's caught a lot of people's eyes. And um, but, but then, uh, again, I think that uh, the really good ones nowadays have, have added their own little flair to it and, and new things that are helping, you know, take it to the next level. You became a head coach for the first time in 2018 at, at Incarnate Word. What did you learn from that experience as a head coach that you're able to kind of, I don't know, maybe fast forward the process a little bit more at North Texas since you've done it before? I think the better question is what I didn't learn from being a head coach. I don't think you're ever ready to be a head coach until you're thrown into the fire. Um, obviously, that was a place I think that, you know, um, didn't have any history of football, um, had no momentum whatsoever. You know, if, if you probably ranked the Division One jobs in Texas from first to last, when I took it, it'd probably be last at that time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I've always prided myself in doing things that people say can't be done. And and so, you know, I, that, that was a fun place to kind of go cut your teeth. Um, I made plenty of mistakes at Incarnate Word, trust me. And and so, you know, I think it helped me here. Um, you know, the timing of my hire where we're so close, you know, a day or two from signing day. And, and I think, you know, uh, when I went back on the first time as a head coach, I, I made a lot of mistakes because I went too fast on things. And whether that was recruiting, whether that was hiring people, whether that was, you know, whatever I was doing. Um, and, and so that allowed me to say, hey, that that making the right hires is more important to take my time than, than to rush in this and get somebody that's that's not going to believe in the thing, same things I believe in or fit into our culture. And then recruiting, same thing. I mean, there's there's plenty of guys um, throughout, you know, the state of Texas. Texas especially that we can go recruit late here that are overlooked because of the transfer portal right now so I, I, I think to take your time um, you know not have knee-jerk reactions um, to really be able to listen to, to your surrounding people I think you know um, I take great pride in the people that I hired and, and I'm not a micromanager so let these guys do their jobs and and to um, ask them for their input you know I, I think you know I have a bunch of guys that have head coaching experience on my staff right now and, and I'm not too proud to go ask them and, and say, hey, I don't know the answer on this. And, and you know, what have you seen? What, what have your, you know, past situations look like? And so, um, so yeah, a ton of mistakes in current word. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I was able to, to, to learn how to do a bunch of things on the fly. Um, I wasn't under the, the uh, magnifying glass all the time, so to speak. Um, and, you know, I mean, that was a, a win-win situation for me. You know, we start winning some games and, and all of a sudden, you know, win a conference championship our first year and you start turning a lot of heads like, what are those guys doing over there? And so, uh, so yeah, it definitely wasn't me. I hired a lot of great people um, that, that were able to help me get there. We recruited a lot of great kids that played their tails off for us. And, and helped us change that culture. So, um, so yeah, ton, ton of, ton of things I learned and, and I was able to reflect on as taking this job. How in the world did Cam Ward 
kind of just go under the radar so much in that recruiting process? Because it, I mean, it's, I mean, he's a superstar, right? He played really well for y'all, then transferred to Washington State. Um, in today's world, with social media and huddle and everything like that, how often do players like that still kind of fall through the cracks? Yeah, more more than what you'd think. You know, I think that nowadays, um, you know, a bunch of these coaches want to go on on these rankings from outside sources now. And as opposed to putting in the homework and, and really going and evaluating and figuring out, you know, not only the skill sets that kids have, but but what they can become. You know, I, I think there's this thing where, where, you know, kids are overdeveloped in the state of Texas. And, um, you know, so you have a kid that that's from, you know, way down in West Columbia that plays every sport that doesn't go to a quarterback trainer. Um, that was a little bit, you know, not he was in a wing T offense, so really wasn't able to showcase his skill set. Um, so I, I just think, and then there's the, the, the lost art of kid developing late nowadays, you know, there's a bunch of great seniors that kind of develop late and, and you have to continue to evaluate, uh, evaluate senior tape. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, no secret. I mean, it's the same thing on a different scope though is why Patrick Mahomes went to Texas tech and, and nobody else in the state of Texas wanted Patrick Mahomes who's the greatest football player in, in the whole entire world right now i guess and so um so yeah i mean I, I i think there's so many levels to it um you know obviously there's there's a bunch of quarterbacks that are really good in the state of texas there's going to be one or two that get overlooked every single year and you're like how the heck did he get out of here and um and so yeah we're gonna have to continue to do a good job here especially even at this level in the group of five and continue to evaluate senior film get these guys to come here to camps and, um, you know, there'll be guys here and there that, that slip through the cracks. Now, your name popped up with, with a decent amount of jobs this cycle. What made North Texas the right fit for you? And what gives you, uh, I guess, hope or, or belief that, you know, y'all can be one of the top G5 programs in the nation with the expanded playoff and kind of the opportunities in front of you? Yeah, I'd say, you know, just, just our administration. I mean, we have an athletic director here that I think, I completely jive with. I mean, uh, a guy that's from West Texas, a small town in West Texas, we're kind of cut from the same cloth as, as being out there. He, he was a guy that um, was was from Lockney, Texas, and then went on to have a great basketball career at ACU, staying staying there, kind of in, in the West Texas thumbprint. Um, you know, I think we'd both you know cut our teeth in the Southland Conference. We've been used to to you know trying to elevate a program with with not a ton of resources and, and find ways to be creative to, to make those things happen. Um, and, and I think this West Texas people are genuine people that, that you know, it's easy for me to go down and, and not have a meeting set up, sit down and, and hey, let's talk about the problems that are going on. How, how are we going to find solutions to this? Um, and that was one thing, you know, talking to, to Jared Mosley was, was he understood that, you know, the trajectory of this this place right now, I think, is really good. I mean, they've worked really hard to, to put them in a situation where they're moving into the American Conference next year, um, where they've, you know, built some some great facilities around here. Um, but at the same time, he knew we still had work to do to get to the top. And and I've always been a guy that's been a problem solver. Uh, you know, I, I think that's what I love to do. That's kind of my my mission and goals in life is, is not to look at our problems, you know, and, and, and be scared away, but hey, let's find solutions to the different problems, both for our student athletes and for our program. And so, uh, so yeah, I, I think first and foremost, um, just just the the relationship piece um, that I have and the compatibility that I have um, with my boss. Spring practice is sneaking up on us as, as crazy as that sounds. Kind of what are the goals for the first spring practice as, as a head coach? How much can you get in? How much of it is about scheme? How much of it is about just figuring out your players? Yeah, I think to just be organized and, and make it look like an actual football plays are being run on both sides <laughs> out there. Um, you know, I think this day and age with the new rules of college football and, and allowing us to, to actually spend some time in the meeting room with them now, you know, get this eight hour a week uh, little period that we can have with the guys. And now, you know, so we're, we're plucking 30 minutes here, 30 minutes there nowadays to actually go over what we were looking for in film to actually go over terminology. And so I think those things are so helpful is actually being able to go out there and, and know what the guys are doing on day one, opposed to, you know, we're looking at, you know, 
10 or 15 years ago where you're walking out and, and it's literally the first time that you've heard some of these play calls that you've been in a huddle, that you've seen it on tape. So I think the rules now allow you to kind of jump ahead on some of that stuff. Um, and then too, I, I think we have a bunch of great kids around here. I, I think, you know, the culture in our locker room has been good as far as, you know, I, I come up here in the afternoons and you walk down the hallways and we have, you know, voluntarily, guys sitting in with coaches, you know, wanting to learn more. They're eager to, to kind of figure things out right now. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, I think right now you, you really lean on your, your strength and conditioning coach, um, who's a guy I'm really familiar with, and Coach Keggins, who's, who's worked, you know, with Coach Riley for the last uh, eight or nine years. And, and then before that, you know, we were, we were teammates together at Texas Tech. So really understands kind of what we're looking for as far as what, what we need once we get out there on the practice field and, and how it's going to be structured and what kind of shape they need to be in. And so um, really leaning into him right now, as far as getting them bigger, faster, stronger, and in shape to, to handle what we're going to put on them physically. And then mentally that's our job as coaches is, is to kind of, you know, try to bring those guys along and, and just get a day better. You know, I, I think that the progress through, through spring is something that you're going to look at from, from day one all the way to 15, you know, how much progress will we make, were we able to make uh, during the, the course of those 15 practices? And then lastly, the American uh, conference schedule came out today as a coach, how much do you kind of look at that and start thinking about things or is that just so far down the road that, that it doesn't even really matter to you right now? Yeah. I mean, my wife's interested in it more than I am. You know, <laughs> she's, she's trying to plan all, all the, uh, you know, planning. When's the wife's trip? You know, I've had more questions from my wife this morning than anybody else on, on kind of, who we're playing, where we're playing, all those things. Um, just a great conference. You're going to have to play them all at some point, you know, and, and so, you know, when you look at it and and you're kind of, you know, got got a bunch of games that are important to this school kind of in the latter half of it as far as, you know, playing the SMUs and the UTSAs and and, and some of those guys that are closer to home that will be some of those in-state games that, that I know people take a great pride in around here. And so um, – but other than that, you know, I, I think that um, that I'm happy with with the way it landed for us. Um, you know, obviously, you know, that to be able to play the competition level that we're about to move up a conference and, and go against the UABs and the Tulsa's and, you know, the SMU's, Memphis's, UTSA, it's like, you know, there, there's not a week off in the schedule. And so uh, I was I was more, you know, focused on, hey, who's going to be first? You know, who's our first conference team? And they're like, oh, here you go. You go, go play the triple option up north the first game. I'm like, that's perfect. And so, uh, so no, I, I think that obviously, you know, people can get into to this scheduling thing on, you know, we got jipped or this team has a better, you know, run than we do. Their buys in a better place than I do. But at the end of the day, I've always been a coach that, hey, we're going to have to play them all anyways. Like, like we're going to have to beat them all if we want to get to where we want to go and win a championship. So that, that stuff's out of our control. I don't spend a lot of time on, on worrying about things I can't control. I'd rather start uh, start figuring out how we can uh, score a couple points against all these great opponents and, and maybe hold them to – to not very many touchdowns and so uh but our work will be cut out with us uh for us this year just uh, a lot of quality opponents all right coach we really appreciate the time and, and when you do get those boxes in there make sure you make taylor uh pack them up for you to get them up get them i'm, gonna, there I'm gonna send you a picture that way you can look at it and know that hey coach morris actually has a real office <laughs> get, I, I need i need some of those uh look at you you have the little soccer scarves in the background yeah. all kinds yeah. of stuff Old credentials I'll, and stuff like that. So, you know, I'll, you got to make your workspace happy. I'll be there at some point. So thanks, Mike. I appreciate you. Thanks again to North Texas head coach Eric Morris for hopping on with us. Craven, uh, before we get into these Texas 10s, uh, a couple articles that you've put out already about Eric Morris a little bit. Um, you know, you I remember you saw the Texas State game where they beat uh, where UIW beat Texas State. You know what? How, do you think you've did you, after talking with him after taking the North Texas job? Do you think you've you've seen a little bit of a I don't want to say growth necessarily, but do you have you sensed any different a difference in him at all from taking a year to go be an OC somewhere D one or uh, to FBS level um, to now taking his second head coaching job back um, back in the in the head seat? What I've always loved about Eric Morris is he straddles that line between cocky and confident. You know, he he kind of talks about, you know, he, he was like, we're going to have a basketball competition tomorrow. I'm taking me. 
You know, like, <laughs> you know, he he mentioned how he got a scholarship offer uh, from Texas Tech. He said he told Mike Leach, you know, take anybody else that's competing for the scholarship offer, lock it in a room and I'll fist fight anybody who wants it. And I'm, I'm going to get that scholarship off. Right. Like he has always been that guy and he did it at Incarnate Word. He took the underdog job at Incarnate Word. That job was like Lamar. Right. I mean, he's he said it I was about to say for 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 at the time, Incarnate Word hiring the Texas Tech offensive coordinator is insane. Yeah, it wasn't a good job. Like yeah. now Incarnate Word is rolling and like you just you get to be a head coach at the FBS level if you do your time there or whatever, like, you know, but it wasn't true then. That was a mm-hmm. nothing program. And, you know, being an undersized five nine four a player from shallow water, Texas, he's kind of always had that chip on his shoulder and he doesn't do it in like an in your face way. It's this kind of quiet uh, smile in your face as he beat you in something <laughs> kind of confidence. And I think that's going to work well at North Texas. I think that's the perfect demeanor uh, you need for these G5 jobs. I think Jeff Trailers built a similar way. Mike Bloomgren's built a similar way. I, I think those guys uh, are tough dudes who are kind of used to working for what they get. And I think that works there at that level. So I think when I talk to him, that's always the thing that stood out to me. Back in Incarnate Word uh, or any time in between then, uh, he he's not cocky about it. He's not brash about it. But when you start talking to him about football and athletics, like he is very confident and that he can get the job done. And history suggests that he's done it everywhere he stopped. So why would that, you know, not be true and didn't? Sure. hundred percent. All right. Let's get to a little, little bit of a transition. Uh, speaking of North Texas, you made some new friends this week on Twitter. Uh, let's get to the Texas tens article. Uh, okay. So if you're listening to this quarterback running back and wide receiver are up right now, or sorry, wide receiver will be up uh, Thursday. Tomorrow, uh, yeah. yeah. Thursday uh, quarterbacks and running backs are up. Of course, Mike Craven ranking the returning players coming in or just the players coming into the position um, early look before spring camp starts quarterback dropped. And uh, yeah, Craven made some friends. North Texas <laughs> was very, very, very noticing that Chandler Rogers was on an honorable mentions list. Uh, again, go check out the article. I'll just give away the first first place. Frank Harris. I don't think anybody could really debate that. Um, for the full rankings, again, go, uh, go check out the piece. But let's just get it right out of the way. You know, ch- ch- explain your reasoning because I I don't have a problem with it, right? But explain your reasoning why Chandler Rogers perhaps wasn't on the top ten. I think once you get past number seven, Blake Shapin at Baylor, this thing mm-hmm. opens up. The, the final the final three were Chandler Morris at TCU, who beat out Max Duggan, by the way, last offseason. So if right. Sonny Dykes and, and uh, Lincoln Riley, or not Lincoln, Garrett Riley, uh, are confident in Chandler Morris's ability, me as a simpleton is going to be as well. Uh, sure. JT Daniels, I mean, he's played Power 5 football, a former five-star recruit. Like, he's going to mm-hmm. be – like, I know more about him right, than I do sure. about Chandler Rogers or uh, Malik Hornsby. I think once you get to the Malik Hornsby-Chandler Rogers discussion, it's it's a flip of the coin in the air. I have I have no beef with anybody thinking that Chandler Rogers should be at 10. I took Hornsby because it just he's just so freaky speed-wise. Like, I mm-hmm. know he does a thing that most people can't do. And mm-hmm. I know in that G.J. Kenny Mac left, which offense, it will work. And it has yeah. worked in, in the past. So I, I've seen a blueprint from it last year in Lindsey Scott winning the Walter Payton Award as the top player in FCS. And he's coming in, down from the SEC, right? He's played against SEC defenses in the best division in college football. Um, he's going to go down to the Sun Belt. That's going to be, you know, an easier transition than going from the Sun Belt to the American for a first-year head coach. You you were decent in the Sun Belt, but, right, it's yeah. not like Chandler Rogers was a first-team all-conference Sun Belt guy who led a team to a championship. Louisiana Monroe was 4-8. and eight. You know, like they, they weren't very good. And so uh, I just think there's so many question marks in the air. Maybe this is some bias because I I know Malik Hornsby's game a little bit more and I covered him more uh, mm-hmm. when he was in high school as a big time recruit. Uh, but again, I have no problem with North Texas fans thinking that, you know, uh, Rogers should be there at number 10 or even, you know, eight or nine. Uh, the ones who are saying that he's like a top five quarterback in the state. I mean, that's just being a fan, right? I mean, he, right. he may end up being that, right? Like Max Duggan was the runner-up in the Heisman. Like, we have no idea what's going to happen. Uh, but on paper, just looking at it, you can't you can't put him above a lot of these other quarterbacks based on talent or just based on where they've played, right? Like, Connor Wigman hasn't played a lot of football, uh, mm-hmm. but he's eight touchdowns, zero interceptions against SEC competition. He's a five-star recruit, right? Like, I'm going to mm-hmm. bet on that every single day of the week over, you know, a Monroe transfer that we still don't know uh, how he will transition into this offense or not. No, 100%. I, I, as somebody who paid, you know, 
obviously I pay attention to the Sunville with Texas State. And so I knew he was a very capable quarterback, right? I knew he was probably very likely better than UL Monroe. Um, that team wasn't very good this year. He was one of their bright spots, but it is a step up, right? His QBR was very fine, right? It was it was a lot of numbers that I don't say empty stats is, is an awful term. I'm not going to use that, but it was very much like this guy's clearly more talented than his supporting cast. And so he's clearly help and again that's a credit to him so maybe yes he could step up to this level and this is the level he should be playing at and then he ends up being finishing the year you know we do this list again and he's eighth or fifth or whatever but as of right now yeah sure i think that there was a lot to still question about it now again like you admit we don't know a lot about what malik hornsby will do but we do know one he was very close to KJ Jefferson in that Arkansas battle, in that quarterback battle, right? KJ Jefferson got hurt a couple of times. They had to put uh, Malik Hornsby in. Looked pretty good. We know him from his four bed Marshall days. You knew, you do know he was a very, very, very highly touted recruit. And he's going down a level, right? He's going down to that level to where we could maybe have an easier time projecting him being kind of a game breaker. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Let's what what besides that one. Was there any other ranking that you kind of had an issue with or where you had kind of struggled to to kind of place them here? Yeah, I honestly think the whole middle of it was pretty tough, right? Like, because it's so it's a lot of projection this year. It's It's a lot of turning, turning the page. It's a lot of projections, a lot of young guys who kind of got their feet wet last year, but weren't really the guys yet. You know, Connor Wegman. Preston Stone, Chandler Morris, Donovan Smith, even, you know, going into Houston where he's going to be the dude now. Mm-hmm. How do you rank those guys? I have no idea. Right. Yeah. And so, like, I think for me, the number one was the easiest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it felt like Quinn Ewers, Tyler Shuck are right there at two, three, just because I've seen them do it more at, yeah. at you know, the big time level, quote unquote. But then four through seven was like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. It's pick your poison, right? It's dealer's right. choice. That's how I phrased it. Uh, when we put it out there on, on social media, because it, it's what you value. Some of those guys have more experience. Some of those guys have more production. Some of those guys have more upside. Which one do you pick? You know, and so mm-hmm. it's a subjective list. It's February. It's meant to be a talking point. And I'd imagine when we look back on this thing in December, just like last year, there's a little bit of egg on my face. Yeah. Looking on to running backs a little bit. Um, I think it's a little bit, a little bit more set. Um, there was some projection there, right? But uh, I think towards the end there, but when it, honestly, I'm looking at it right now, one through eight, I'd say first is Richard Reese, by the way, uh, from Baylor. I don't think there was much debate there. Um, one through eight, I feel like it's, those names are off right. And I think it was just like getting the order correctly. Um, there's not as much projection, right? Maybe you have a Jonathan Brooks who you're projecting on a little bit, but from what we saw in the little flashes, he's, she showed, it's hard one. It's hard to punch into a rotation of Bijan and Roshan Johnson, but the fact that he got his, his the 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 highlights he did five touchdowns out of that group is pretty damn good. So I would say yeah, I'd be okay with him projecting him a little bit. Um, but for the most part, I'd say those eight names, if we're being honest, are pretty set in stone. Yeah, I mean, I think Richard Reese was one for me. The toughest thing was like, where do we put Alton McCaskill? Sure. Yeah. Cause it's like, we try to remember two years ago or a year I mean, ago, he, I guess we should say he scored 18 touchdowns as a true freshman and set a rushing record for Houston in terms of yards, touchdowns, overall touchdowns. It was great out of the backfield mm-hmm. uh, was incredible at 18 years old. He, and he missed last year for people who don't know he, he tore his ACL uh, in spring practice about a month from now, it'll be a year uh, since he had that injury. And so, you know, having him back, where do you put him in that pecking order? Because Going into last year, if he doesn't get injured in, in the spring, he's in our, you know, all Texas team, right? Like he was mm-hmm. going to, he was up next, like, but after Bajon, after Devon A-Chain, Ultimate Caskill was right there in that, in that conversation of the next group of running backs. So where, where does he, you know, how does he come back from the injury? Uh, what does he look like moving into the big 12 without Clayton Toon? He's going to have to be the focal point of this offense. You bring in Donovan Smith. Those two can really give you a one-two combination in the run game back there. It's going to be a different-looking offense uh, for Houston next year. So that was an interesting thing to me. Convarian Barnes, you know, AO, Adeyi, like where do you put those guys? How do they stack up against each other? You know, North Texas has been so good running the football over the last couple of years. What does that look like with Eric Morris? Do they kind of keep those same principles? They're losing a lot of offensive linemen at both of those schools. So what does that run game look like? You know, anybody who's listening to this podcast know I'm more of a offensive line dictates your running success more than running backs. And so how does that happen this year? But uh, yeah, you get to the bottom of the list and you're guessing, you know, like yeah. Kamar Wheaton, we think it's pretty good. 
right? right? You know, uh, Amari Daniels, you know, we think is pretty good, but you know, he only got 36 touches last year. That's how much they gave Devon a chain, the ball, you know, in college station, like he got all of the carries. And so, yeah, you get past those first six or seven guys and, and you're starting to kind of project. And, you know, then there's, there's crowded backfields, right? Like we put Jonathan Brooks in there, but if somebody told me right now, Cedric Baxter's the guy by, you know, mid-October and Jonathan Brooks is a, is a reserve player. I'm, I'm believing right. him. Like, that's how good Cedric Baxter is. Or you know, Jayon Blue. He put on, you know, Blue, he put on right. insane weight and he's ready to go, you know? I mean, at A&M, Ruben Owens comes in there and just takes that job. Like, I'm not surprised, right? At SMU, if LJ Johnson transfers yep. in there and takes him. over from Kamar Wheaton, I'm not surprised. And so uh, I think running back can be the toughest place to project these days because there's so few places where you just have that one dude right? It's it's more of a stable, more of a committee, more about offensive line and what your coach wants to do. Uh, and so it can be, it can be tough to really parse who is the better talents and who is just getting more opportunities to be talented. Oh yeah. hundred percent. So like I mentioned, uh, those two up there are up right now on textfootball.com. Wide receiver will be dropping Thursday. If you're listening, I'm to struggling this. by the way, I'm struggling on the top three wide receiver Deal. it's I've, I've looked at i've taken a peek on it it's it's tough it is yeah. very tough because i like, think there's three guys that are in the conversation sure 100 zakari zakari so. franklin at utsa xavier worthy xavier worthy at texas evan stewart at texas a&m yeah and so like the, the debate of the debate of if of course last year was xavier worthy or tank dell right whichever it yeah was kind going of like into the debate. year rasheed yeah. rice yeah sure but Okay, Xavier Worthy clearly, I don't want to say took a step back, but he was very much not on the same page as his quarterback. He didn't right? take the step forward we thought he was going to take. Right? Right. He kind of, he just, He yeah, had some was... high profile drops and him and Quinn Ewers just did not get on the same page. So like, okay, how much do you take away from, is he a worse player, right, necessarily? Um, right. Or if, do you just penalize if... him a little bit for Zakari Fra- and reward Zakari Franklin who had a stellar season? And if Evan Stewart played in a Will Stein offense with like a six-year quarterback starting or what, like what was his what would his numbers look like? I was about know? to say he had six he had he had six hundred fifty yards with like twenty seven different quarterbacks and like right. one of them was capable of like probably being the starter. So yeah, yeah it, it was nuts. And as a true freshman, so yeah, yeah. it it's 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 gonna be crazy. Um, yeah, I've seen the list so far and it's it's looking pretty interesting. We'll we'll, we'll we're gonna get some discussion on that one probably. And, and then you know. Sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say you may get more hate if you put Zakari Franklin at number one too. Well, well, like I don't. But here's the thing: I don't really think there's an argument, very good argument against it. I would pick Zakari Franklin. I mean, going into this year, he's got he's got the best quarterback. He's got the best quarterback. He had the best production, in my opinion, last year. Like I, I think this is. I, I don't know. We'll see. Because I, I, to to be honest, I think Texas fans have a will have a hard time arguing worthy not being number or have a hard time arguing worthy being number one off of last year, right? Yeah. I think yeah. they would look at it and say, "Yeah, you're right. He took us. He took a little bit of a step back because they yeah, they're I'm, disappointed in him." I mean, Zakari Franklin had 94 catches for 1,136 yards and mm. 15 touchdowns. Yeah, Worthy and Stewart combined for 11. Yeah. Like and yeah, Zakari Franklin is freaking good. And if he transferred to Ole Miss, like he would be talked about as one of the best wide receivers in the nation. But he's at UTSA, and so we don't do that. Same thing. What happened with Jacob Cowing at, at UTEP? I was about to say know? he he yeah he was um, this a good Jacob Cowing uh, example. I mean, Zakari Franklin is an NFL player. Like that mm-hmm. is a guy. That is not just some G five dude collecting stats or whatever. That is that is a dude. Joshua Cephas also a dude. J T Clark also a guy. Like and so. Yeah, it's just like I said earlier, it's just a hard one because I think I think if I'm going potential, I'm taking Evan Stewart number one. Oh yeah. 100%. If I'm going production, I'm taking Zarkari Franklin number one. But if I'm going upside in the offense that he exists in, I think I'm taking Xavier Worthy number one. And so yeah. uh it's just a hard, a hard thing at, at the top. And another part of it, I just think I'm really all in on AM's offense this year. I mean, somebody's gonna have to help me. Right from this <laughs> to reel, uh, reel it back in, reel me back in. But <laughs> think of, I mean, Evan Stewart, Anaya Smith is coming back. Mm-hmm. That's a massive get. Iwin Smith just transferred in from UTEP after being in the top 10 wide receiver in the nation, productive wise. Mm-hmm. Moose Muhammad is freaking awesome. I was about to say, Moose Muhammad as a number two slash number three, that is insane. And if JT Sanders didn't play tight end at Texas, 
Donovan yeah. Green would be the best tight end in this freaking state. Yeah. And so, like, if Connor Wegman is any good, and if Bobby Petrino can call plays from this decade, and that offensive line blocks anybody, like, my lord, like, Texas a and <laughs> like, all of a sudden, they're going to go from a laughingstock offense to, like, look at all these weapons. And so... Uh, I think I I'm talking, I've talked myself into Texas and I think I've talked myself into Texas A&M, which means I've fully been uh, indoctrinated into the Dave Campbell's Texas football. Like I'm all in, like I am, I am, a, I'm as Homerish as Homer can get in this. The A&M. mothership brands. You're just right. all in right, right. now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> all right. Well, like I said, that'll drop Thursday morning. So we'll definitely get that one out and hopefully you guys can go check it as well. Um, yeah, that'll do it for us. By the way, go check out a lot of Greg Powers stuff right now. He just put out this week his top 10 FBS instant impact freshman for 2023. He went through and looked at some first year guys. By the way, there's that's not all his projection either. That's talking around a little bit, right? Sources. So if, you, if you want, if you want a hint of maybe who your school is looking at pretty early to start right away and make a pretty big impact. Go check out that piece. Um, the other one is, of course, is the six the six most offered 2024s already. That just went up today on Wednesday. And uh, yeah, be sure to keep an eye out for Corey's piece as well on D3 coaches and their opinions on the potential rules changes coming to college football. That'll do it for us. We have now caught back up. We've interviewed 12 of the 13 FBS head coaches, thanks to both GJ Kinney and Eric Morris. Jimbo Fisher, you are once again back to being the only one within two weeks. <laughs> Within two weeks, you're back to being the only one. So please jump back, jump on with us. And as always, go Rutgers.